what do you look for in a leader? Charisma? Good looks? Confidence? Good things, but somewhat wanting. As we turn our attention to Leviticus chapters 21 and 22 this morning, we find that God's primary requirement for leaders is holiness. Indeed, I've tried to summarize the main idea of these two chapters is this. The leaders of God's people must be especially holy and committed to teaching God's word. The primary exhortation is this, to look for and learn from godly leaders. Outline is there before you. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together. Father, we thank you for your love and for your kindness to us, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together here to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done, dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead for our justification, freeing us from death, freeing us from a life of condemnation. Lord, this is good news, and it is for this reason we gather to give you praise and honor and glory. We ask that Jesus' name would be magnified among us here. Let your word do its work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 21 in the first six verses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron's sons, the priests, and tell them, A priest is not to make himself ceremonially unclean for a dead person among his relatives, except for his immediate family, mother, father, son, daughter, or brother. He may make himself unclean for his unmarried virgin sister in his immediate family. He is not to make himself unclean for those related to him by marriage, and so defile himself. Priests may not make bald spots on their heads, shave the edges of their beards, or make gashes on their bodies. They are to be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they present the fire offerings to the Lord, the food of their God, and they must be holy. And so we have some opening instructions for those who would serve in the tabernacle as priests. And there's kind of a picture going on here. We've said before that God doesn't actually eat food, right? In Psalm 50, he, he, I don't, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, God says. But this is a symbol. It's a picture of what the priests are doing. They're bringing the offering of the Israelites to the altar. It kind of serves as like God's table. And then they are actually able to eat from God's table. They eat his food. It's food for the Lord. To be distinguished from what the pagans were doing, where they actually thought their gods ate, right? They'd set food before their idols and then cover it up with a sheet, and then mysteriously the food would be gone. This isn't what's going on. God doesn't need sustained by his people. The offerings, rather, are communicating about how God and man enter into relationship with one another. And it is a great and holy privilege of the priests to take the holy offerings, the sacrifices, to the altar. And I will refer you back to those first five or six chapters when we studied this really in depth, if you are more curious about that. In our chapter, though, we learn that the priests who are making those offerings cannot mourn 
in the way that would typically be culturally appropriate for them, for everyone else in Israel. So when someone near them dies, like they don't get to just show up at the funeral. They don't get to participate in preparing the body for burial. They don't, they don't get to do that unless it's their family. They're called to be holy in their mourning, to be different than the rest of the Israelites. God's call on their lives to ritual holiness is higher than the normal, everyday Israelite because they are, in this system, closer to God. They're actually entering into his, his tabernacle or palace. Uh, a good way to think about this is, is God is the king and the tabernacle is his palace and the priests are his palace servants. And so they need to be holy in order to be serving in God's palace. And if they defile themselves and become unholy, well then they will defile God's palace. God's holiness is not to be defiled or desecrated. And therefore, they can't go and participate in mourning in the same way that they usually would. Because it is the height of uncleanliness in the ritual system to touch a dead body, to be around death in such a way. It would make them unclean and unfit for service. Furthermore, this note, uh, we saw it a little bit last week in chapter 19 of the marring of the sides of their beard and bald spots on their head. Like That's not a problem if that's your look today, right? Uh, but for them, there was association with pagan mourning rituals. And so they're not allowed to do it. Say, don't grieve, don't mourn like the pagans. Especially you priests. This is a rule for everybody, but especially you priests. There can be no association with the false gods of the nations around us. And a part of that too is, is the pagan nations would worship the dead. Right? And I, that sounds weird to us. Worship the dead? But that's just because we live in the West. Like ancestor worship is, is a thing that's pretty prevalent in other parts of the world. I know of uh, some Chinese folk religions where uh, the um, progeny of the deceased will actually go and purchase, uh, it's like money for the dead, and you purchase it with real money, and you get it and you go to where the, the gravesite is or wherever their, their body is and you, you burn it so that they can have resources in the afterlife. The whole, whole thing. And God is saying the priests are not to have any association with death. They're not supposed to have any association with death because God does not operate that way. He wants to make clear they are not to worship the false and dead gods of the nations or any of the deceased. They are to worship Him alone. And His priests have nothing to do with the worship of the dead. They are to be holy in the way they mourn. And, and this holiness, this ritual holiness, is taken up a notch in the case of the high priest. If you look at that in uh, verse 10. The priest who is highest among his brothers, the high priest, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and has been ordained to wear the clothes, must not dishevel his hair or tear his clothes. He must not go near any dead person or make himself unclean, even for his father or mother. He must not leave the sanctuary or he will desecrate the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And so the high priest isn't allowed to mourn, not even, like, even for his parents. And it's because 
He has been set apart as specially, ritually holy. And therefore, he cannot ever risk entering into a state of impurity. Now, he doesn't have to stay in the, in the tabernacle forever. Um, that's, it's obvious that he doesn't do that. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't be able to have a family. Uh, he wouldn't be able to enjoy relationship with his wife, right? That kind of thing is forbidden in the tabernacle, as you might expect. But he has to be ready to serve there at all times. He has to remain ritually pure, ritually holy. Priests are called to be holy in their mourning, and they're called to be holy in their marriages. Look at verse 7. They are not to marry a woman defiled by prostitution. They are not to marry one divorced by her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. You are to consider him holy since he presents the food of your God. He will be holy to you because I, the Lord who sets you apart, am holy. And so in their relationships, in their marriages, they have to be above reproach. It has to be clear that their children are their own children. And therefore, they are barred from marrying uh, women who are divorced and from marrying those who had served as prostitutes in society. One commentator notes that the law is more interested in the woman's character and reputation than her previous sexual experience is indicated by the fact that an ordinary priest was allowed to marry a widow, but not a divorcee. However innocent the divorced woman was, in fact, her reputation was likely to have been affected by the divorce. And so everything is concerned with the character of the priest's wife and what the, the perception would be for those looking at the priest. He has to be above reproach. He has to be pure and holy, completely set apart for God. And again, the notch is even higher for the high priest. Verse 13, he is to marry a woman who is a virgin. He is not to marry a widow or a divorced woman or one defiled by prostitution. He is to marry a virgin girl from his own people, so that he does not corrupt his bloodline among his people, for I am the Lord who sets him apart. And so, so again, we have the holy character of his marriage being on display, and so the, the chastity of his wife would be an expression of her character, and it would also be a guarantee that his bloodline would not be corrupted. You see that in verse 15. And you have to remember that only the children of Aaron are to serve as priests. Levites have to be priests. And so for the, the high priest, this is really important to make sure the bloodline is pure. And one of the ways God has um, designed for them to do that is by putting this restriction into place. That the priests have to be holy in their marriages, they have to be holy in their mourning, and their families have to be holy. Just as a wife's character would reflect upon the high priest, so too could his children's. They're held to a higher standard. Look at verse 9. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by prostitution, she defiles her father. She must be burned to death. This would be an incredible insult to the God of Israel for the daughter of a, of a priest to become someone who was sold out to prostitution. Most likely the type of prostitution in view here would be temple and cultic prostitution once more of the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. And so you can see that it's not just that she has gone into a profession of ill repute. It's that she has rejected the God of Israel, the God of her father, the high priest, and apostatized. 
to go and worship among the nations around them. And God will not suffer such an insult. And so he commands that she be burned. God is holy. And sin is heinous. God requires that his priests be exceptionally holy in all areas of their life. Their marriages, their family, their mourning. And we see even in their physical bodies. Look at this in verse 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron, none of your descendants throughout your generations who has a physical defect is to come near to present the food of his God. No man who has any defect is to come near. No man who is blind, lame, facially disfigured, or deformed. No man who has broken foot or hand, or who is a hunchback or a dwarf, or who has an eye defect, or a festering rash, scabs, or a crushed testicle. No descendant of the priest Aaron who has a defect is to come near to present the fire offerings to the Lord. He has a defect and is not to come near to present the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God from what is especially holy as well as from what is holy. But because he has a defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar. He is not to desecrate my holy places. For I am the Lord who sets them apart. Moses said this to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites. This requirement does not mean that God sees people with infirmities as inferior. His requirement of blemishlessness is not about the worth of the priest or the person, but it's about symbolism. God is holy and perfect and pure. And so those who come into his presence to serve him must be as close to perfection and purity as possible. They must be as Eden-like as possible to go into the presence of their God because they are representing the people to God. And God can, cannot have any kind of unholiness, any kind of Un, any kind of blemish in his presence. Unless we're tempted to read this in a way that makes it seem as if God does not care for the, the weak or those who would be uh, deformed or carry around disabilities, uh, we need to remember that the testimony of all of Scripture is just the opposite. That God loves the weak and the lame and the blind. Jesus comes to heal them. I mean, just in chapter 19, we had this prohibition. Don't curse the deaf. Don't trip the blind. They might not hear you. They might not see you, but I will. And if you do these things, my wrath will come upon you. God cares about those with disabilities. I mean, I always think of of Jesus in John 9. And they say, why was this man born blind? And Jesus said, it was so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. We must not think that God displays his glory only in perfect people. Rather, he displays his glory perfectly in all people. In just the way that he has made them. This prohibition is not about their inferiority 
It's about the perfection and the holiness of God. Everything that happens in the tabernacle communicates about who God is. So the priests must be holy in mourning, marriage, family, and holy in body. And do, do note on these verses, these guys are still priests. They're deformed, but they still serve as priests. They just can't go near the curtain or the altar. They still get to eat the priestly food. And so, even despite the fact that their disabilities prevent them from going to the curtain or to the altar, they still get to come to God's table and eat. God loves these people. He doesn't, doesn't hate them. He doesn't disdain them. It makes me think of 2 Samuel chapter 9, when David has, has vanquished all his enemies and he is looking for Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And the last remaining of Saul's bloodline. He's seeking him out so that he might show God's kindness to him. He finds him and they, they bring Mephibosheth before him. And Mephibosheth, is, he's doing the math here and he knows how these things work. New king comes to the throne, old king's descendants, all of them get killed. I'm the last one, I'm probably about to die. And then David surprises him with these words. He says, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? What a wonderful picture of the gospel. We are all like Mephibosheth, spiritually crippled, descended from those who rebelled against the true king. More, we've taken up arms ourselves, And yet, God seeks us out and shows us his kindness because of his love for Jesus Christ, to whom we are united by faith. When we come to Christ in faith, God says to us, My child, do not fear my wrath. I will show you kindness for the sake of Jesus. This is, this is wonderful news. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, you need to know that, that you too are spiritually crippled. That you too are dead in your sins. That, that you deserve the wrath of God. And yet God in His loving kindness calls you to respond in faith to the gospel. To believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord so that you might take hold of all of His promises. God promises to forgive sin. He promises all who come to Christ a seat at His table. He promises eternal life, relationship with Him. I implore you, as all the Christians in this room can testify, there's nothing better than coming to Jesus in faith. Indeed, I encourage you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good and He is holy. And He commands holiness 
of his leaders. That's what qualifies his leaders to be leaders is their holiness. And we've seen him outline for the priest holiness in marriage, holiness in mourning, holiness in their family, holiness in body. And we get the idea that there needs to be an all-encompassing holiness to their whole lives. They're to be models of ritual holiness. And so if we, we take this forward and we look at the church today, this side of the cross in the new covenant, we recognize that these ritual and ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ. And so ritual holiness is not something that is required of God's leaders any longer. But certainly moral holiness is. God's leaders are still to model holiness. We see this truth come out in 1 Timothy 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, overseer, pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." You'll notice that these requirements don't have anything to do with leadership skills or formal education. Have anything to do with gifting or ability. I mean, there's one ability, you gotta be able to teach. But aside from that, it's all about character. Not about gifts, but about character. This is a person who is to be holy and Christ-like in order to lead God's holy people, his church. Somebody once said, I think it was an old Greek philosopher, I can never pronounce his name. It starts with an H. That'll help you if you research it later. Character is destiny. I mean, we, we, we see that this is what God is after, is holiness. And yet, so many churches, time and time again, appoint elders and pastors based on, well, how gifted they are, how charismatic they are. Maybe even sometimes because they're just really, really good looking. And those ministries ultimately fail. We want to, as a church, strive to appoint leaders who are Christ-like, who are godly, who set an example in Speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Look for and appoint godly leaders. And this is also true, what's, what's true of those who would lead God's holy people is true of the people themselves. And so if you look at that list of qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy, it's, it's not all that extraordinary. These are things that all of us as Christians should seek after. Right? Like, don't be a jerk. Be nice to other people. Don't be a bully. 
Be above reproach. Be committed in your marriage if you're married. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Be hospitable. These are things we all ought to seek after. I mean, the only incredible thing about the list of qualifications for elders is that it's, it's incredible. It's actually quite ordinary. Yes, these, these, these men who would serve in the office of elder or pastor need to model purity. They need to model holiness. But they're modeling it as an example for those whom they lead to follow. As we follow the holy leaders God has put in place, we should find ourselves following Jesus more closely. And so elders... Mike, David, it is important for you all and me to live holy lives. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor, once put it this way, the greatest need of my people is my own personal holiness. What this congregation needs from its leaders is not Y'all's giftedness or my good looks. Why are you laughing? It's our holiness. We need to cultivate vibrant relationships with God if we are to lead our people into vibrant relationship with God. Paul gives a little bit awkward but wonderful illustration of this in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 7. He, he's speaking to the Thessalonians. He says, We were among you like nursing mothers, gentle. I think likewise, we ought to take a posture of, of nursing mothers. Not that there's any gender dysphoria going on here, but that we would recognize that, that we ourselves have to feast upon Christ if we are to give nutrients to those who are looking to us for leadership. In the same way that a, a mother nourishes her child from the nutrients that she herself takes in, we too ought to feed those under our care with the nutrition that we have gained from feasting upon Christ. If we do not do this, we will find, much like an infant that is nursed by a mother who cannot get enough to eat, that our congregation will wilt and wither, will be malformed. And so we need to ask ourselves constantly, am I living a life worth following? Church, we, we want to look for and learn from godly leaders. We want to obey Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Are you following your leaders, church? God calls his leaders to be especially holy. And he calls them to teach. He calls them to teach his word. And we see this in chapter 22. Specifically in terms for the priests, in terms of the food offerings and the sacrifices. I just want to drape Leviticus 10, 10 through 11 over this whole chapter. It says, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, 
the clean and the unclean, and teach the Israelites all the statutes that the Lord has given to them through Moses. The the job description of the priest is to teach and to offer sacrifices. And so, it's not, I think sometimes we think of priests as just kind of like glorified butchers, right? You show up with your cow, and you're like, all right, I'll, I'll have this many steaks, this much ground beef, you know, do, do your thing. But that's, they did more than that. They're teaching as they offer sacrifices. They were teachers. And that's what we see them doing. First, as it relates to food. Verse 1 of chapter 22 The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to deal respectfully with the holy offerings of the Israelites that they have consecrated to me, so they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any man from any of your descendants throughout your generations is in a state of uncleanness and yet approaches the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person will be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. And so early on, we learn here that if somebody is just a normal priest, becomes unclean, then they cannot go to the altar and offer sacrifices. The penalty is a death. We also learn in the rest of the chapter that only certain people can eat of the priestly offerings. So no one unclean can eat of the offerings. So if you're an unclean priest, you can't approach the altar to offer sacrifices, and you can't eat the food, at least not until you're clean again in the evening. And then look at, look at verse 10. No one outside of a priest's family is to eat the holy offering. And so unless you are a member in the priest's household, you know, a, a descendant or a slave, you can't eat of the holy offerings. God has assigned them to that priest and his family. And to do so is sin. So if you're, if you're friends with a priest and you go over to his house and he's I don't know, grilling burgers or something, and you just quickly snatch one up, and he's like, actually, that holy to the Lord, you can't have that. That's sin for you. You actually have to add 20% to whatever the food is that you took from him, and then offer it as a compensation offering to make restitution. It's incredible. You, You can't eat. No one can eat from the priest's food, lest they defile that which belongs to God. Two things I want us to see here. One is that the duty of the priesthood is serious. This is a serious responsibility. To, to mess up is to court death. Makes me think of James 3.1 in the New Testament. Not many of you should presume to become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Elders, we ought to take serious the responsibility of leading God's people. Church, you ought to be serious about following God as you follow your leaders. Live your Christian life in such a way that you make the role of your leaders a joy rather than a drag. That's what Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be 
of no advantage to you. We need to be serious, all of us, serious in our pursuit of God. I think so many Christians get, get what I will call the, the, well, another pastor called and now I'm calling, the baby book phenomenon. Baby book phenomenon. We, we become Christians and we get really serious about our faith. And we're like, I'm going to memorize this whole Bible. I'm going to be in church every Sunday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray six times a day. And then as time goes on, eh. It's similar, right? Uh, you, you get a baby book for your first child. And you're up there in the middle of the night. It's 2.30 in the morning. And you're just writing, journaling in that thing. Baby's up again. He's so wonderful. His cries, he, he cries out to me as, as I cry out to you, my God. I meet his needs just like you meet my needs. He's just so sweet. Keep his toenails and, you know, first haircut, uh, an eyelash, you know, placenta. People get weird. You keep that book. But then the second baby comes along. You write their name in the book and you don't keep it up quite as well. You got the, the footprints they gave you from the hospital. And then the third baby comes along. And then you're sitting there and you're like, honey, how do we spell his name again? And then the fourth baby comes along. And one day you're sitting there exhausted and you look over on the shelf and there is his baby book wrapped in plastic and collecting dust. All these other things in your life take your attention away from the baby book. And this is, this is just what happens, I think, in the Christian life. We, we start out very serious, very devoted, very affectionate for God. And then all these other cries, all these other demands in our life take our attention away from God. And slowly but surely, they squeeze our enthusiasm from us so that, that we look over at our Bibles on our shelves gathering dust and we think, eh, it's not that important after all. But it is very important. We are to pursue holiness and purity with seriousness. See that seriousness and the call upon the lives of the priest to teach about this holy God whom we are to know and to pursue. The second, second thing in these first 16 verses of chapter 22 is the priest is actually supposed to guard the food. This is this weird thing in chapter 15, the priest must, verse 15, the priest must not profane the holy offerings the Israelites give to the Lord by letting people eat their holy offerings and having to bear the penalty of restitution. They're to make sure that people understand what sin is and to try and protect them from committing sin. And you can see the connection to the New Testament. This is what, this is what elders do. They, they teach about sin and they try to keep people from committing sin. Paul says it this way in Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. To teach well enough, I hope, so that, that you all are able to, to recognize sin, to encourage you all uh, to fight against sin. We want to know what sin is and we want to turn from it. Another thing that jumped out in my mind in this passage, and 
you can take this connection or leave it, okay? Uh, is this the connection between the eating of this food and the guarding of this food and, and, and the Lord's Supper, right? Just priests are able to eat from this food. Just holy priests. And so on this side of the cross, remember we read earlier in, in 1 Peter 2, but we are all priests. We're believer priests. We, we tell the world what Jesus is like. Tell people how to come into relationship with God. And now, as believer priests, as Christians, we all come and eat of the holiest sacrifice that was ever offered when we come to the Lord's Supper. We eat of the flesh and blood of Jesus. And I think, in a way similar to the priests in the Old Testament, there's a responsibility of the church and of the pastors to warn people about the perils of eating the sacrifice when they should not. So the Christian who's, who's caught in sin, loving pastors and churches will say, uh, you, you might hold off on taking the Lord's Supper until you've repented. For the non-Christian, we, we would encourage it, don't, don't partake of this meal. For the Christian who persists in habitual unrepentant sin, we would we would remove them from membership and say, friend, we want you to repent, but this meal is not for you. This meal is for the redeemed. It's for those who are repenting of their sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, you have stopped repenting of your sin. Don't, I'm warning, don't eat this meal. It comes with judgment if you eat unworthily. The act of keeping an unrepentant professing Christian or a non-Christian from participating in the Lord's Supper is loving because Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 are true. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, unrepentantly, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without recognizing the rest of the church and recognizing Christ himself as Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died. So I just I couldn't help but see the connection. And to warn you, don't partake of this meal casually or unrepentantly. It's for those who have trusted in Christ, those who have been set apart as holy and are pursuing holiness. This last section we come to and we see the priests are to teach not only about the food, but about the sacrifices. Look at verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the Israelites. Tell them, any man of the house of Israel or of the resident aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether they present payment of vows or free will offerings, to the Lord as a burnt offering, must offer an unblemished male from the cattle sheep or goats in order for you to be accepted. You are not to present anything that has a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. You go down through the rest of the verses here, and there's one exception to this rule. It's a free will offering. 
Uh, it can have something elongated, I believe. But the main point is that all of these sacrifices have to be blemishless. If you're concerned, verses 26 through, through 30, um, they are about animals. They say you have to wait eight days before you sacrifice an animal, and then a whole family of animals can't be sacrificed on the same day. So if you're scratching your head, you go, well, what was that there? Uh, it's just a concern for the animal world, that we are not to just inhumanely treat livestock. God, God is concerned with all of his creation. But his primary concern in these verses is that the priest would teach his people to only offer blemishless sacrifices. And don't miss the connection. Blemishless priests, blemishless sacrifices. And there's a list in this chapter. There's a list in, at the end of chapter 21. And they sort of match up about the blemishes that priests or sacrifices might have, which would make them unacceptable. Well, why, why is this important? You've got to understand that an offering, it's, it's more than just a meal. It is a symbol of one's dedication to God. A constantly repeated lesson in the nature of God's holiness and a means of atonement. I actually see the Israelites ignore this command in Malachi. Some of y'all were here when we went through the book of Malachi. None of you remember. <laughs> I had a hard time remembering. But I did remember this. I made the connection. Early on in the book, Malachi is preaching to the people, and the big sin is that they have all been offering blind and lame animals, disfigured animals, animals full of blemishes. And the priests who are supposed to inspect the animals are perpetuating this problem. It is dishonoring to God. And God says, you wouldn't take a broken gift to your governor, so why are you bringing it to me? I'm greater than your governor. And he says, I am insulted when you bring to me gifts that are just kind of left over. Just kind of things that you didn't really want or less valuable. Because I am God and I am worthy of your best, of your blemishless. You can see the connection between the sacrifice. Blemishful people, people who are sinners, they bring perfect sacrifices without blemish to God because God has ordained that the priest would offer the sacrifice in their place for their sins so that they could be forgiven. And yet, the Israelites ignored it. And by ignoring it, made little of God. And I wonder, do you bring God your best? Does he get your, the first and best of your money? Just what's left over. Does he get the best of your day? Even on the Lord's day? Or does he just get, well, what's left over, what you didn't fill up on your calendar? He's worthy of the best. He is the holy God. I did want to take a moment. We're going to be done in like three minutes here. I wanted to take a moment and encourage you 
because I, I've just, one of the things that I was talking about with David and Mike a couple weeks ago is just our congregation has been so faithful in giving. Like since, since the day I got here, I've never had to stand up and give like one of those rah-rah, let's, let's give more money kind of speeches. Never had to go like, all right, we need to, we're going to go topical this week and we're going to talk about stewarding our time, talent, and our treasure and we're going to talk about giving. Never, I've never had to do that because uh, you all have just been faithful. Day in, day out, ordinary faithfulness and God has been glorified in it and this church has been served well in it. So let us praise God for the work he's done in you. And pray that he continues to do it. That you all continue to give faithfully. That we continue to give faithfully. I mean, even in the pandemic, the giving has been faithful. Praise God. And now I've got to remember where I was. I promise you, just a couple more minutes here. They're to teach about the sacrifices. And you've got to have a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. So once more, we find Levitica, Leviticus drawing our attention to Jesus, who is the perfect high priest without blemish, the perfect sacrifice. The demand for perfection both of priests and the offering is ultimately and uniquely fulfilled in him, who as high priest was not only unblemished and unstained, but as the sacrificial lamb of God was a sacrifice without defect. He offered himself for us so that we might have peace with God and with one another. And this is really this twist of irony now. Because before, the only sacrifices God accepted were those which were blemishless. But now, the sacrifice that is acceptable to God that pleases him The sacrifice of the broken. What do, I, what do I mean? The sacrifice that is pleasing to God, that is damaged, that we can offer to Him is ourselves. When we come before Him brokenhearted and poor in spirit, through the blood of Christ, and say, I am yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated to Thee. God is delighted call us children. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. This is good news that our leaders ought to teach us over and over and over. So friends, as we think about who God is and who he's called us to be as a people, who he expects our leaders to be, we need to remember it's the same word over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. He's our holy God. We are his holy people. And he commands us, he tells us to appoint holy leaders. So look for, learn from, and follow holy leaders as they direct your attention to the holy God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. It is unelicited. We've done nothing. Yet you have set your love upon all who call out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he gave his life so that we might live by faith in him. We thank you that he has risen from the dead so that like him we might share in a resurrection. We thank you that he rules and he reigns and that there is a day coming when we will weep no more. We long for that day. We give you praise and honor and glory now through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.